Hello, welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. My name is Bart Taylor, I'm the producer of this show and also the Vice Chair of NAEP and delighted that you've joined us and to listen in to really understand and, and take on board what it is that we're trying to do as an association. I'm really delighted that Robert Young, who is our General Secretary, has really been integral in, in making the Primary Umbrella Group really come back to life. And thank you to all the associations and all the people that have been involved in that. It really is key that as a primary group of organisations supporting children in primary schools, that this uh, that the get-together and the kind of communication through everybody together really gives us strength in terms of being able to shape and, and understand a narrative for what we really think primary education is all about. One really exciting thing that's been happening at the beginning of this year is Mike Halen, the chair, has been really putting together some fantastic videos which are now available on our YouTube channel. They're designed to support you as teachers within schools about really exciting things that you can do within your school and the first couple are all about art and line drawing so please do check those out. If you go to the NAEP website you can click straight through on a direct link and that is naep.org.uk that's n-a-p-e.org.uk UK. You may remember in previous episodes we've talked about the book Christian Schiller in his own words which is a book that Nape actually helped produce um, many years ago and we've been working through this book chapter by chapter um, reading it out to you to give you a little bit of an idea about how important this is um, for education but also specifically for Nape as we do have a Christian Schiller lecture every year. Um, this week our information officer Peter Cancel is reading a chapter from this book called The Social Growth of Young Children. Please do go back to the previous episodes to have a look. You can look directly from the NAEP website or look back through on the show notes here to find these other chapters. They're, they're really informative. They really give you a sense of even way back in 1924 when Kristen Schiller was appointed in HMI, the informative experiences that he had in some of these conversations he had and lectures that he will put together for this book are really as important and as strong and relevant today as they were back then. So I hope you really enjoy this episode of Peter Cancel Reading social growth of young children. Thanks very much for listening. London, June 1948, at a conference of lecturers in training colleges. The social growth of young children. We are met at this session to consider the social growth of young children, in particular during the phase of growth from four plus to seven plus, the infant phase. What do you mean by social growth? Do you mean learning to behave, to blow the nose skillfully, to refrain from hitting Willie on the head because it gives him a headache, or from pinching Mary because it isn't nice? Or do you mean learning the technique of good fellowship, to say good morning, pardon, and excuse me, or do you mean learning to be a member of a team, to work with the team spirit? All these are possible meanings. During the next half hour, I shall attempt to present for your later discussion another possible meaning of social growth. Growth is a process of change which may be apprehended as a pattern. Not a pattern like that on the carpet, fixed until it wears through, but a pattern like that of a sunrise, changing continuously in time and space, and similar, but never quite the same from day one day to the next. We cannot stretch a sunrise on a pin, or several pins, 
and measure its parts exactly. We can only describe it. And we cannot describe it adequately in words, since we must perforce use words whose meaning comes from another usage and is therefore implicit and not precise. It would have been a relief to me, and doubtless to you, to relate a few illustrative anecdotes and leave it at that. But this is a matter we must discuss later, and we cannot discuss in anecdotes. We must communicate with words. Therefore, I shall attempt to describe a meaning of social growth in words, at the painful cost, I fear, of wordiness. For me, social growth means that part of the growth of each young child which gives her an increasing awareness and understanding of other human beings as part of her world. The awareness comes from explanation, exploration of a widening field of persons which gives greater and greater experience of more and more living beings. The understanding comes from an increasing power of identification with other living beings. Awareness can be helped to grow by providing a field of exploration suitable for each phase of growth. Understanding through identification with others depends in large measure on the imagination and can be helped to grow by providing a climate of feeling in which the imagination thrives. All these are words, awareness, understanding, exploration, experience, field, climate, words taken from other usages, with meanings that are implicit and not precise. Words arranged in sentences which describe inadequately observations of a changing pattern. During the rest of the time, I shall try to give these words significance in terms of experience with young children which we've all shared. Awareness and understanding are words which describe two overlapping aspects of the same part of growth. But for the purpose of discussion, it will be convenient to consider these aspects separately and therefore to use distinguishing words. Mary O'Callaghan, who lives in two rooms in a house off Scotland Road in Liverpool, was already the oldest of a family of four children when she came to school at the age of five. She could not do sums, but she'd often done her mother's shopping of tea and sugar and bread and milk in Penny and Hapneyworth from the shops in their street. In awareness of living beings, she began with her mother, but soon included her granny, who took her over when the second one came. Then in slow succession, she included two aunts, her father, the neighbour on the staircase, an uncle, and one by one, the people of the house and of their street. These were all included in the world of Mary O'Callaghan when she came to school at five. But her world included few, if any others. The teacher was at first not merely a stranger, but a strange phenomenon. Mary Smith, who lived in the select housing area of Dovecot, was an only child. She lived in a road, not in a street. She played only in the garden and never went out without her mother. Her world of awareness included her mother, father, 
auntie, auntie's little girl, whom she didn't like, the lady next door, the milkman, and the cat. These formed Mary Smith's world of living beings when she came to school a little after five. The field of exploration, which gives greater and greater experience of more and more persons, was more limited in the latter case, but possibly it was richer. In both cases, however, entry to school inflicted a sudden and severe change. Both Marys found themselves a unit in a swarming community of 50 or more beings of the same age, housed at close quarters with several similar communities. This happens to most Marys. The shock is often great. Fortunately, it's softened by the fact that Mary does not accept a new world of which she is merely a unit, but continues to live in her own world, now invaded by a number of new beings. We have all often observed Mary's dismay and alarm on her first arrival at school, and then, with a skilful teacher, in a few minutes, her happy absorption alone in play with a doll or other object. The only part of this new invasion of which she is willing as yet to be aware. For the teacher in the reception class, the problem of social growth is not how to teach the technique of good fellowship in a community, but how best to help Mary become aware of and then understand her enlarged world, which now perforce includes many other beings like herself. This is a problem for us to consider and discuss. <clears throat> the shock of a too sudden enlargement of her world on entry to school caused Mary Smith to withdraw within herself to a world even smaller than she had before. But most young children, when they come to school, soon recover and then want to go out and explore. If the field is made to feel secure and unfrightening. They can explore, however, only in their own way, and this is a slow way. Let us consider one reason for the slowness of their way. For our own adult exploring of people, we make use of conversation. It's perhaps our chief method. But when a group of five-year-olds sit happily round a table, perhaps drinking milk, they chatter together loudly, but they rarely converse. Usually, they merely say things. Even sixes converse little with each other. Of course, you and I have had engaging conversations with boys and girls of only three and four, but you and I have helped them to understand our thoughts. Their friends of five and six cannot do this, Conversation, the turning to and fro of a thought between two persons, requires more awareness than someone else speaking. It requires understanding, and understanding not merely of another person's words, but of another person's thought. At four and five and six, young children rarely converse with each other. On the other hand, as we've all experienced, Children as young as three can converse with adults, but they converse only with some adults, those who can be understood by them. First with mother, then perhaps with father, or an aunt, or a new friend, and so on with an increasing number of individuals, each of whom in turn can be added to their world of those understood. Mary O'Callaghan, after the first shock of our meeting, in answer to leading questions, told me her life story, and even volunteered one or two statements. 
With her friend, Kathleen O'Connor, sitting beside her, she communicated only by looks and gestures. But Mary Smith at Dovecote put her head under her wing and refused to include me even in her world of awareness. Of course, young children talk to animals. Animals do not ask questions. They never answer back. They are the perfect listeners. They do not converse. It is with grown-up humans that children practice their growing power of conversation. While Mary's power of conversation with selected adults is growing, generally she practices identification with some, at least, of these adults. Being mother at the shops murmuring fish, being father putting on his boots and saying damn, being the milkman or the cat, it seems reasonable to guess that this identification with adults is a form of exploration, of trying to experience what it's like to be mother or father or auntie or the milkman, and that this identification gives the understanding of these and of similar adult beings which is necessary for conversation with them. Conversation with them, in turn, provides a means of further exploration. Certainly fours and fives and sixes rarely play at being themselves and rarely converse with each other. How rarely they converse with each other is reflected in the rarity of authentic recorded conversations. Though there are many records of conversations of young children with adults, I've collected the two following conversations between young children. The first was recorded by a colleague observing two, two three-year-olds at a nursery school. They had been promoted to sit at the table normally occupied by bigger girls. Here they are waiting for their dinner. Mary and Jane. Mary, big girl. Jane, big girl. Mary, I'm a big girl. Jane, I'm a big girl. Mary, I'm a big girl. Jane, I'm a big girl. Mary, big girl. Jane, big girl. Mary, big girl. Jane. Big girl. Mary and Jane together. Big girl, big girl, big girl, big girl. That, you will agree, is typical of the age of three. It cannot be called a conversation. The speeches show mutual awareness of the most important matter of the moment, but they, are, but they show little interchange of thought. The second conversation is between two girls of four and three months and four and six months who had been playing together from their earliest years and had every opportunity of understanding each other. On this occasion, the younger, Sarah, was spending the night at home with the, uh, the elder, Anne. The children had been put to sleep in beds facing each other. After a little while, a conversation began, which was overheard and recorded. The following is part of it. Sarah. Anne, I want to lie down. I want you to go to sleep. All right, well, don't suck your thumb. Are you asleep now? I'm asleep now. Anne, I don't want to be spoken to. I'm going to the Queen's party. When? Tonight. Now? Yes. Well, tell me. You don't know when it's starting. I've got to go to it. Have you? Well, curl your hair round your fingers like this. What? Curl your hair round your fingers like this. Turn the curtain away. I can't see. 
I'll do yours. I'll show you. Like this. No. Well, then you're not going to the Queen's party. Well, Anne, show me. Do it to my hair. I can't do it because it's so long. You can have it like this. I'm going to put this on. Can I come to the Queen's party? You can come to my bed and see how I go to sleep. Where are your friends? Are they going to the Queen's party? I go to sleep like this. I know a better way. I like this way. Are your friends going to the Queen's party? What, Anne? No, Sarah, they aren't. I've got to do their hair. I've done mine. Have you done your hair? Yes. Are you going to go till midnight? Midnight is nothing. Midnight is... I know how midnight flies. It's light. Midnight is nothing. It is, because Mary's told me. It's nothing to me, anyway. I can if I want to. Apart from the reflection, which will be in the mind of those who stand in the fish queue, that for many of the population social growth is evidently arrested at four and a half years old, I should like to offer two observations on what we've just heard. This is the record of the conversation of two intelligent children who probably understood each other as much as any two children of four and a half were likely to. It's probably as highly developed a conversation between children of that age as we're likely to find. But the interchange of thought is only just sustained. The flow is only just kept going. It is conversation, but it is conversation at its very beginning. Among threes, with each other, there is practically no power of conversation. At four and a half, some children can sometimes converse with each other, as we've heard, in the simplest possible way. But at seven plus, as we well know, most children can converse with each other easily. For most children, the power of conversation with each other comes into being between four and a half and seven and a half, which is the span of growth covered by the infant school. This is one of the outstanding characteristics of this span, perhaps the outstanding characteristic. The first way in which we can help the social growth of infants is to help grow their power of conversation with each other. This is a matter which merits discussion later. My other observation is this. The conversation we've just heard, simple as it is, shows a lively imagination. The boundary between the actual and the imagined is but faintly realised by either child. They converse as they live with active imagination. This fact at once provides a glimpse of the mode in which young children explore and experience, and suggests a viewpoint from which we may profitably observe them explore and experience a viewpoint which catches the play of their imagination, the viewpoint of play. Although play is a word stretched right and left to describe a wide variety of activities, I used it so a moment ago, it still retains an underlying notion. Babies play with sand, letting its smooth but rough texture play against their own soft skin. Very young children play on the sands, digging mounds, any mounds, anywhere. Later they play at throwing up ramparts to defend against the invading tide. And later still they play at building sand castles, carefully fashioned with battlements and bridges created out of their imagination. First comes exploration of some material. Its substance, its texture. What is, what is sand like? 
then exploration and experience of the way of the material, the way it can be used, how does sand behave, how can you use it, and then with assimilation of this experience and with the resulting skill comes expression creatively with the imagination. Sand is now merely a material or medium for expression. This is the pattern of playing with sand or bricks or any other material. It's the pattern of play with anything. Mary explores and experiences the material and as she makes it part of her world, so with her imagination does she use it creatively. This is the pattern of the work of the artist. Children also play at being people. First, at what it's like being themselves. To have a hand whose fingers move, to feel softness, to experience the rhythm of stroking. Then experience, then it's experience the doing of others. Dusting like mother, jumping like a rabbit. Then it being other things, at being mother, shopping, or putting the baby to bed. Or at being a bear, growling for its food. Such early play of doing is not shared with another child. The interest is personal. Nor is the play of being shared with other children. <clears throat> interest remains personal, as in Mary's identification with mother or the bear. <clears throat> Here is an example. A class of five-year-olds at school, moved by a telling of the story of Red Riding Hood, wanted to play at the story. Each boy and girl chose his or her own part and was soon busy. Some lived the life of the woodcutter in a wood cutting down trees. Some prowled about like a wolf. Nearly all the girls and some of the boys were Red Riding Hood herself. There was no embarrassment at the abundance of heroines. Each player played her or his own way, indifferent to anyone else. Playing with something and playing at being someone are two ways of doing the same thing which we call playing. With young children both ways follow a similar pattern. In playing at being, the material consists of living beings. Its substance and texture is explored and experienced. What does it feel like to put a baby to bed? What does it feel like to be a mother? And with the assimilation of this experience, and with the resulting skill, comes expression creatively with the imagination. This is the pattern of being mother or of being a bear, Mary explores and experiences first the doings of and then the being like another person. And as understanding grows through identification, so with the imagination comes creative expression. Mary plays the role of mother or of Red Riding Hood, with movement of every part of her body, occasionally with speech, but always with artistry. This is the pattern of the work of those artists whom we still call players. This, in rough sketch, is the pattern of growth revealed from the standpoint of play. We've seen Mary exploring her expanding world of living beings. We've seen her experiencing what it is like to do this or to be that. We've seen her play bring identification with and understanding of an increasing number of persons. We've seen the mode in which she explores, experiences and understands. It is the mode of the artist who creates with the imagination. Play in the mode of the artist leads young children to identification with and so to understanding of people. 
Play and conversations have shown aspects of the pattern of social growth. How can we help this pattern to grow? We can arrange the field of exploration and experience so that it is at least more suitable than often at present. To achieve, achieve this, the teacher must have a personal knowledge of each child derived from trained observation. And she must have skill in the technique of dealing with a class of 40 infants, not as one world, but as 40 different worlds. We can, at least in fuller measure than often at present, provide for children the opportunity to explore their world in their own mode, which is the mode of the artist. This is an even harder task for a young teacher. It requires no less than the creation in the classroom of a climate of feeling in which the imagination can thrive. You have experienced the class of 40 infants, each doing what they've been told to do because they've been told to do it, quiet, diligent and dull. You've also experienced the class of 40 infants, each completely absorbed in his own affair, but apparently no one having been told to do anything, humming, intent, radiant. No list of rules, no schedule of procedure can de define the difference. It's a difference of climate created by the teacher. What is the climate in which the imagination thrives? In search of an answer, let us consider how success has been achieved in that field where young children's imagination has thrived amazingly in recent years. During the past 20 odd years, the pathetic imitations in chalk or paint of an orange or a whip teacher's bag have become in many different infant schools vivid pictures where the sure use of colour and pattern is only less remarkable than the radiant imagination which conceived the whole. How has this change come about in a single generation? In those schools known to me where the paintings are most remarkable as expressions of the individual imagination of each child, it happens that the children come from poor homes. In no case have the teachers much if any skill in painting. But in every case there is in every classroom a certain climate which may be found in all schools where painting flourishes. It's a climate in which painting is an interesting thing to do. You paint what you want to paint, how you want to paint it, on the floor, in the passage, on a small or large piece of paper, with a large or fine brush, or both, and with many colours or few. It is a climate in which a teacher is interested in you painting rather than how or what you paint and knows how to come without being called when you need help but not otherwise. It's a climate in which painting is a delightful but serious business. There are no school painting rules but paint has its own rules. Dirty brushes spoil the colours, colours run if they touch when wet and so on. It's a climate in which experience reveals the way of using paint, in which each child sees his birth gift of good taste to accept this or reject that, in which each child assumes the discipline of dealing well with the material. This is the climate in which the imagination thrives, in which it thrives like a flower and not like a weed. The imagination borders with fantasy and is kept within its rightful territory only by that discipline which distinguishes the artist from the lunatic. In this climate, Mary's imagination grows and at the same time, 
she assumes the discipline of respect for the material, which is the nature of creative work. Why does Mary, after the first wild slosh of paint, like to stroke the paper with her brush, controlling every movement? Why does she select colour and shape and arrange their patterns with careful judgement? No one knows. Least of all Mary herself. We only know that this is what she does. I have described the climate in which painting has thrived. The imagination will thrive in such a climate, not only when dealing with paint, but with words, with movement, and also with people, with living beings. Young children deal with all their material, living as well as still, not as technicians, but in the mode of the artist. In a climate in which the imagination thrives, young children see their expanding world of living beings as a number of individual persons, each interesting to explore, to experience, to understand, to use with the imagination. And with persons, as with paint, they assume the discipline of respect for the material. For young children, living is not a technique, it is an art. Consider an illustration. What is to stop Mary from hitting Billy or pinching Kate? A variety of restraining reasons may be imposed from without, deriving from an external will. I believe that the most effective reason is a discipline assumed from within and deriving from respect for Billy and Kate as persons. To take another instance, washing dirty hands before handling clean things, using the cloakrooms decently, taking mid-morning lunch and school dinner carefully, are events of great importance to infants. But I believe even such important events help Mary's social growth to the full, only when they form part of Mary's own living. That is to say, when washing and dressing and eating are not tricks, but are activities which use the imagination and are guided by the discipline of respect for the material. Here is one meaning, though only one, of social growth, that part of the growth of each young child which gives her increasing awareness and understanding of other human beings is part of her world. Awareness comes from exploration of a widening field of people, which gives greater and greater experience of more and more living beings. Understanding comes from the increasing power of identification with other living beings. Awareness can be helped to grow by providing a field of exploration suitable for each stage of growth. Understanding through identification with others depends in large measure on imagination and can be helped to grow by providing a climate in which the imagination thrives. When the imagination thrives, Mary assumes that discipline of control, selection and arrangement which respects the way of the material as much as the way of the user. I believe it is Mary's assumption of the discipline in, of respect for the material which will enable her one day in the future to become one of a society of persons while preserving the world of her own independent personality.